this morning. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, Jeremy has guided us through what it means not only to be a good shepherd, but also what it means to be a good sheep. We're to learn the sound of God's voice so that we can recognize it and respond to God, not as we think he ought to be, but as he truly is. And at the end of last week's reading, Jesus withdrew from Jerusalem after a crowd nearly stoned him just because they didn't, uh, uh, he didn't meet the expectations of who he ought to be. And today we're coming to another episode where Jesus uh, doesn't meet any expectations, so we're going to launch straight into the passage. I should have said, by the way, mine is Jesse. Hi, good morning. Um, uh, I normally lead worship, but sometimes I preach. It's great not having to lead worship when you have such an incredible team as we're leading this morning. Um, Let's launch straight into our passage. It's uh, John chapter 11. We're going to read from uh, the beginning of the chapter to verse 37. And the words will come up on the screen. um, Or if you have your own uh, mobile phone, I'm sure you can look it up. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, who is also called the twin, uh, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Yay. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, which was just about two miles off, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So as I was uh, studying this passage, I was just uh, asking God, what on earth is Jesus up to? And um, and I had three possible answers uh, to that question that I that I offer to you this morning. The first thing I think Jesus is doing is he's keeping in step with what his father is doing. There's a lot of detail in this passage about what Jesus does and when he does it and where he does it. But let's just think for a moment about some of the things he could have done that he didn't do. First thought is that he could have gone to Lazarus immediately, and this almost seems like the obvious choice. John makes a big deal over the fact that John really loves this family. So we would expect that if Jesus is going to go at all, he's going to go straight away, but he doesn't do that. Option number two, he could have listened to his disciples and stayed where he was. It meant saying no to a trip to go and see Lazarus and family, but it would avoid the danger that awaited him in Judea. This too would make a lot of sense, but he doesn't do that either. Option number three that I can think of. I reckon he could have had the best of both. I reckon he could have stayed where he was and healed Lazarus. He did it with the centurion's son. Centurion comes and says, my son is sick. Jesus says the word, the son is healed. Doesn't have to be in the same area, obviously, for Jesus to enact a healing. Doesn't do that. Option four, this is what I call the ninja solution. Um, he could have gone to Bethany but kind of snuck in, uh, maybe under the cover of darkness. But he didn't choose any of these very, very sensible options. Instead, he makes the strange choice to wait where he is, just to make sure Lazarus is dead and buried for four days. And then, when he does go to Bethany, he does it right out in the open, where there are people, and, and it's literally just like a, a few minutes walk down the road to Jerusalem where people were trying to stone him. So he's, he's not doing it undercover, and he's not doing it while there might still be a chance of actually healing Lazarus. So what is Jesus up to? Well, in my view, the significance of Jesus' actions here uh, 
is a lot like those other occasions, those many other occasions in the Bible, when God's ways seem very strange and very disconnected with uh, reality as we perceive it. God really does move in mysterious ways. Just ask Joshua. March around the city seven times and then blow a trumpet and just see if I don't send the walls crashing down, says God. To Gideon, he says, send most of your men away so that when you go into battle, you have the puniest army possible so that when you win, everybody knows that it was God that did it. To Elijah, he says, I want you to burn this offering in front of all of these pagan priests, but before you do that, I want to find as much water as you can, pour it all over just to make it absolutely impossible that anything will burn, and you see if I don't make fire. So I think Jesus is making choices that although they make very little natural sense and very little logical sense, he knows that these decisions will ultimately maximize the glory that people give to God. That motivation of God's glory is the critical factor. He doesn't just do things because they're weird. He does things to give glory to God. Remember that not everything odd is God. So Jesus chooses the wisdom of God against the wisdom of men. And this is where I want to pick up Jeremy's point from last week. We have an idea of what God ought to do sometimes. And that is sometimes, maybe even often, incompatible with who God actually is. Uh, in the book, uh, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis observes, I need Christ, not something that resembles Christ. Not my idea of God, but God. Jesus doesn't always reveal the God that we want, but he always reveals the God that we need. And in a minute, I'm going to talk about how when we lay aside our false notions of who God ought to be and embrace God as he actually is, we begin to change so that we begin to want the things that God wants. And our decisions start to look strange to the rest of the world as well. All of what I've just said may on its own mislead us into thinking that Jesus is a bit of a cold, dispassionate operator in this scene. There's this family here who's He's supposed to love, and he's not doing what he could do. But that leads me to uh, the second answer that I came up with as to what is Jesus doing. I say I came up with, it's in the Bible. Jesus wept. <laughs> I'm sorry uh, to give you this spoiler, but what happens after this passage is... Um, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But when Tim preaches about that in a couple of weeks' time, I need you all to act really surprised. But um, <laughs> here's the thing. Jesus knows what he is going to do. So what is he weeping for? This question has caused scholars much difficulty. But I have my own theory, which is a bit out there, so I just want you to, see, to kind of track with me here. I think Jesus is weeping because his mate has just died. And it really sucks. And what's more, there are people around him, and they're all in pain, and that's, that sucks too. 
So the fact that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus, Lazarus to life and give glory to God and fulfill his mission in doing so, it doesn't mute or negate the genuine sorrow that Jesus himself experiences and expresses. And looking at Jesus' reaction in this, in this moment, and then taking a look in the mirror of, of our own culture, and especially British culture, I've come to this conclusion. We are really crap at grieving. We're taught to bottle up our pain. Um, I remember when I was younger, one of the earliest things I learned to say was, doesn't hurt. You know, you sort of fall over and doesn't hurt. Try and pretend to somebody that you're so hard. <laughs> that was my London coming out there. Did you, did you notice? <laughs> you're so hard. It doesn't hurt. I'm not crying. It's just something in my eye. <laughs> and even if we don't pretend that we're not hurting, we admit that we're hurting, but we do everything possible to, to medicate to self-medicate, you, you, you try to keep busy to avoid ever having to confront the cause of your pain. Or in my uh, preferred method is to eat my way through kitchen covers just to feel better for a little moment. Or maybe it's drink or sex. You know, just various ways in which we uh, indulge so that we don't actually have to confront the real problem. The problem is that it hurts. Or maybe this is something else I try to do. You try and think your way out of the pain. You try and sort of rationalize it. So if I believe in a resurrection, there's really nothing to, to weep about, really, is there? Whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And C.S. Lewis again said in his book, uh, Grief Observed, this, by the way, was his reflections on, on uh, the death of his wife. He says something along the lines of, I hope that if my feeling disguises itself as thought, perhaps I will feel less. But he later, of course, realizes that is an illusion. So here's what I believe God is teaching us through this passage. He can and does raise the dead to life, but that doesn't mean there is no death. Death is an unspeakably painful business to which the emotional response of weeping is absolutely 100% appropriate. Jesus never promises that you get to avoid death. Instead, he promises that you will and must die. But he promises his presence and his comfort all the way. And what looms large over this entire narrative is Jesus' own passion and death that we'll be contemplating on the, uh, on the passage into Easter. Jesus goes through um, torture and death knowing that he too will rise from his tomb, but that doesn't make the experience any less unpleasant. He's not there going, doesn't hurt. So this is, this, this is the takeaway. This is my profound theological observation for today. Pain is painful. You heard it here first. <laughs> You're unlikely to see that on a bumper sticker, I guess. 
Jesus is not in the business of death avoidance. He's in the business of coming alongside us to weep with us as we weep. So we need to stop pretending that pain doesn't hurt. C.S. Lewis again writes, this is, uh, C.S. Lewis has been very helpful to me in preparation here. He says, the prayer preceding all prayers should be this. May it be the real I who speaks, and may it be the real thou that I speak to. So I've already said we need to lay aside our false notions of who God is. But at the same time, just as true as this, we need to lay aside our false notions of who we are and who we're supposed to be. When we do this and we strip away our false selves and our false gods, we find that we just want to weep. And then when we do that, we find that God comes alongside us and weeps with us. This is uh, just a really quick note on just the season that this church family, uh, the Kingdom Vineyard, is in right now. Um, just in the transition, I was just thinking about, about what this means for us right now. Because it's difficult not to see this passage landing uh, at this point, at this time, as being of prophetic significance. I believe that we must not fail to celebrate new beginnings uh, that we're about to do in this church. But at the same time, we mustn't deny the pain of an ending. We must grieve, but we never give grief the final word because God has so, so much more for us. And not only does this land uh, on a week where we're about to enter into transition, it lands into a week where we see the beginning of Lent, as I said, which is a period where we're invited to fast for 40 days, just as Jesus did. And in fasting, we do the difficult work of shedding all of those dependencies that we have on anything but God. And then in Easter, we just celebrate the resurrection, the new life that we experience when it's just me and God, us and God and nothing else gets in the way. That's the side note aside. Last point. So Jesus is in step with his father, and Jesus is weeping. What else is Jesus doing? Jesus is leading the way to eternal life. No biggie. Um, he's keeping in step with his father, and as he does that, we need to keep in step with Jesus. He says this strange cryptic saying about daylight and nighttime, and I think he's talking about um, the period of his own ministry. He's saying, he, he's saying it's still time, I've still got work to do, even though the nighttime threatens. But even though these hours of darkness um, cause people to stumble, they're no threat to the light of the world. God's work can and will continue in spite of the darkness. There's this great line I read once in a book on apocalyptic studies. I know I'm all kinds of fun. Um, it said, it said if, you were asked, if you were to ask John this question, does eternal life start now or is it something that starts in the future? John would probably answer, yep. But John, what I'm asking you... Is eternal life, does it start after I die? Or is it something I need to be concerned about right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the most, things, most important things I learned from studying apocalyptic literature is that behind everything that we can see 
around us, there are powerful spiritual forces at work. And there is a spiritual reality that we can't see, but which has an impact on our lives. And the, uh, the same is true in the other direction, that what we do has an impact in the spiritual realm. And what we choose now, and the, the, the things that we decide to do right now, have an impact on uh, our eternity. To quote uh, Toby's favorite movie, um, The Little Mermaid. I mean, uh, no, I mean uh, 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 Gladiator, sorry. Um, <laughs> what we do in life echoes throughout eternity. So Jesus affirms Martha's proclamation that there will be a future resurrection while also saying, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is to come, but the resurrection is also now. And so I want to convey a sense of urgency about this to you. Christianity is not about an afterlife. It's about life. What Jesus offers us is not an afterlife, but an after death, which is something I had to get my spell checker to recognize. It's a word I just made up, apparently. What we experience in the after death is life, and life, friends, has already begun. Jesus invites us all here and now to take his hand so that he may lead us into eternal life. That is a decision we can make right now, right here. I'm just about coming to the end of my uh, observations. I hope they are of some help to you. I recognize that, uh, that it's a bit of a bummer note to end on. But we did that deliberately, the cliffhanger, because we wanted to, um, we wanted to just take the opportunity to speak um, not just of the powerful work that Jesus does in raising Lazarus from the dead. Again, look surprised when Tim says that. Um, but we wanted to dwell just in this moment where Jesus is present with his friends and weeping alongside them. So often, we find ourselves in situations that cause us to ask, where is God in my pain? And that's the answer. He's right there with you. And he feels the pain too. He knows that pain too. So my three answers to these uh, questions, what is Jesus up to in this passage? He's keeping in step with the Father, doing what will ultimately bring glory to God. He's weeping with us not pretending that there's some way to think a way out of the genuine experience of sorrow that accompanies death. And he's leading us to eternal life on a road that is marked with suffering. But Jesus holds resurrection and life in himself, which we too may know when we take his hand. So... 
I could just ask uh, the band to come up. We're going to spend some time in ministry now. And there's kind of an obvious call to those who are um, sort of currently, presently experiencing some kind of grief. And I believe just this is a great opportunity just to, just to join with others in the church and say, God, this really hurts. This really hurts. Others, it's more of a metaphorical death that you're dealing with, an end of an era, um, end of a job, moving house. For all of us, we're transitioning in this church. For all of us who love Toby and Carol, we know they're not going anywhere, but it is the end of an era. So let me ask you to uh, stand. And uh, I'll just pray for us if you join me in prayer. And then uh, the band will just strike up a little bit of music. And then it's, uh, there's going to be loads of time for you to just come up to the front. And members of this church who are part of home groups will come alongside you, pray with you. Let's pray.